My name is Jesse Worcester, co-founder and partner of Worcester Investments. And first of all, the, the title of this podcast, the title of the, the book that we're in the process of writing is The Seven Keys to Passive Investing in Multifamily Real Estate. And it's a, uh, definitely a bit of a mouthful, uh, but that's very, very intentional uh, because so the, so the opposite of having kind of this investing 101, this generic anyone you know could kind of read it or anyone should be interested in it type of thing. This is incredibly, incredibly niche, incredibly narrow focus. So uh, having the word passive in there is a, a big differentiator. Passive investing versus active investing, we can get into that um, you know as much as we'd like, but that's a very, very clear differentiator. And there's not a lot out there in, that I've seen that really focuses on the passive side. And then even more specific is passive investing. There's lots of different kinds of real estate, but it's specifically passive investing in multifamily real estate. I was at a real estate investment conference and I'm sitting at a, a circular lunch table. We're out on the lawn. It was just a break between sessions. And there, at this conference, there were uh, sponsors and a bunch of investors. And this gentleman, just a really awesome guy, we were just kind of chatting away, talking about the conference, reflecting on you know what we liked about it. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe things he he was he was alluding to, and he mentioned kind of some things that he would like to see a little bit differently. So um, what, he, what he specifically said was, and, and the, the format of the conference is important. So the format was, it, I wouldn't say it's a pitch fest, but it was very pitch focused. I mean, that was the structure for efficiency, which is a bunch of investors are sitting in the audience and then group after group after group goes up on stage and they give their, they kind of have their 15, 20 minutes. And naturally, naturally, if you only have 15 or 20 minutes, you're kind of going to spit through like, who are we and basically why should you invest with us? Um, so very pitch focused. And the comment that this guy made is he said, love this. You know, we love coming here. This is a really high value. But what, what would really make it stand out what would really be the most beneficial if is if we got to see both sides of the coin if we not only got to hear from these sponsors but if we also had our peers from the audience successful people who have been investing with these groups come up on stage and share their experiences and share their lessons hey this is kind of how i vet these groups um, even so specific as like these are the groups that I've invested with and this is how well it's gone or uh, these are the ones that personally I would steer clear of. Uh, but really just, just the summary of what he was getting at was we're only seeing one side of the coin. We're, we're seeing a presentation and with the, what he was getting at with the investors was, man, it'd be really great to have more of a dialogue with our peers and be able to have someone sharing, maybe ask them some questions. And so that was that has stuck with me ever since he, and it was actually an offhand comment. So we were talking about something else and he just kind of went on a little rabbit trail. And, but that, that just stuck with me for years. And so I, since then, have been looking out there. I've been looking at, you know, what books are out there, what podcasts are out there, and there's nothing that I've been able to, to find that accomplishes what he was describing. And so that is what the seven keys to passive investing in multifamily real estate, that was what it was born out of, was that uh, specific investor who mentioned that specific need and then this slow building over the years of seeing a need there. And then since that investor made that comment, um, seeing, my goodness, there's really actually not anything out there that accomplishes this. When I think about who this is for, the first thing that comes to mind is there is a spectrum of sophistication in, in investing in general. And the, the goal is that this is such a narrow niche of, of 
of investing you know, passively in multifamily real estate, uh, that no matter where you are on the spectrum of sophistication, as long as that is an interest of yours or it's something that you're already doing, that this is a hugely valuable resource. So that's really who it's for, is anyone who's has any degree of interest in passive investing in multifamily real estate all the way up to the most sophisticated someone who's been doing it for 40 plus years. I think there's definitely something for anyone along that continuum. What, what does someone get out of it? My hope is uh, that it would be an equipping. It would be this tool and a resource that someone finds themselves just continually coming back to. Because you never really know what answer you are, one answer you need until you have the question. So it might be someone is going out there and they're starting to vet sponsors and they, they you know, read the book or they are listening to the podcast. But six months later, it's like, okay, now we've gotten into and now I'm like really vetting a bunch of deals with, with a couple sponsors. Now I kind of go back and re-consume the, the, the portions that are most relevant to me. So um, that, is, that is the goal, is that it's kind of the definitive resource for folks who you know, already, already invest in, in passively in multifamily or who have any sort of interest in it. Risk-adjusted return. Risk-adjusted, once you add that qualifier in there, it becomes an opinion because you know two two different people are going to view the risk of an investment a little differently like if if i were to say to someone how risky is keeping your money uh, in your bank account someone might say oh that's incredibly safe you know that's the safest thing i can do there are plenty of people who they look at the time value of money they look at inflation and they say it's incredibly risky to keep my money in my bank account. Um, so that's just like one example where risk is relative. Uh, but I believe when you, when you peel back the layers, when you look under the hood, when you really start digging into what are all the investment options out there, multifamily real estate simply just starts to uh, illuminate brighter and brighter and it becomes kind of this like obvious, oh my gosh, for what I'm risking, for what the downside is, the returns are just really, really strong. So the overarching, what does someone get out of this and what is this all for is, the exciting thing to me is we are simply sharing good news with people. We're sharing something that uh, we see, we've seen it with our own investors. I've seen it with any investor that I meet in this space, whether they've invested with us or not. Their expectation and the returns they get and what they're doing for themselves and their family is very different and substantially better from an investing standpoint than I think what you see elsewhere. Okay, so the seven keys to passive investing in multifamily real estate. The keys are like a funnel, okay? So the, the first key is the broadest. It's like if, if you have any sponsor or any investment that you're looking at, you can kind of drop it into the funnel and evaluate that sponsor, that opportunity by just kind of going through the layers and the funnel gets narrower and narrower as you get to the bottom. So one of the purposes is that this is a reference that someone can go back to time and time again. And they can say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm looking at this opportunity or I'm looking at this sponsor and it's a reference check. I'm going back and I'm referencing the seven keys. And it's also meant to be chronological prioritized, meaning start with the first key, and I'll walk through the keys here in a second. Start with the first key, and you don't go to the next layer. If it, if it can't pass the bar at that, at that level, you know, it's, it's probably not worth your time to go to the next level. So the seven keys are, uh, the first four are about vetting the sponsor and their trust, uh, track record, team, and transparency. And then this, the last three are uh, type, uh, thesis, and terms. Okay, so we'll kind of break down each one of those one at a time. Trust is the only one out of the, the entire seven keys that isn't 
really an individual checkbox, so to speak. What it is, is it's this core foundation that you're first assessing it initially, and then throughout the process, as you go through each of the additional seven keys, you're kind of referencing back. It's that gauge, it's that barometer, where there's kind of this initial, you're gonna have an initial introduction, you're gonna have some initial materials that you're reviewing, you're gonna have some initial questions that you have, and it's that there's kind of an initial gut check. Do I see any red flags? Is, you know, does this person seem like they're just, um, you know, promising the world, you know, overinflating things? Um, and so there's, there's that initial gut check. And then as you work through each of the additional keys, like the next one, for example, is track record. So you have that initial discussion. You, you say, you know, this person seems fairly trustworthy or, you know, no red flags, that type of thing. Now you go into evaluating the person's track record. That's another gut check where if stuff they said to you in, the, in, the, in your introduction with them turns out to be a little off or something they said, one of the claims they made was actually false, it's like, boom, you're kind of going back to that you know, trust element. And, and if that's not there, anyone you talk to, any sophisticated investor in the space that you talk with, it is kind of this obsession with trust. Without trust, it's like, you don't, even, you don't even start down that path. Track record is the, is the next key and a, kind, of a, the, kind of the process of evaluating track record that, that you hear a lot of people talk about is the first thing that you're looking for is do they even have the data to share with you? Uh, then you're looking at you know, historical, uh, historical performance, historical returns. A really, really critical, arguably the most critical thing uh, and this is again a personal preference. This is definitely our personal preference as we've gotten into passive investing with other groups. This is a probably one of the number one things that we look at is does the sponsor under promise and over deliver? Where are their projected? This is a really critical distinction to look at on if they have a property portfolio uh, that shows their historical deals. Does it show what they projected on a deal-by-deal -deal basis, what they projected it to perform? And is there, you know, what is the difference between where they're projecting and where it's actually performing? It's just a really, really valuable thing and something that, that we uh, prioritize a lot, both in the way we uh, uh, present opportunities to investors, but also as we evaluate other investors, is are they presenting a picture you know, a, a, a hypothetical picture of how we think this investment is going to go, that it turns out over the years, as you look back on it, it's like, that was a pretty conservative projection. Were they giving me the best case scenario or were they, were they giving me a, a fairly conservative scenario where internally they're thinking, hey, there's a lot of ways we can improve upon this return versus, hey, this is, this is the scenario if like everything goes right. So that's a really, really important distinction and an important thing to be assessing when looking at someone's track record. And so a really, really important thing to evaluate is what are the types of deals that a sponsor is going after or the types of deals that they have available at the present time and how do those compare to the strategy of their track record? Just to give a simplistic example is if a, if a company's track record is buying D assets 50 plus years old in really troubled markets and renovating them and doing well at that. And then today they're building brand new, uh, brand new construction, ground up construction, A plus product. That's a, that's a wide chasm to, to jump across and to, to know all of the differences between those two strategies. So that's just an important thing I, I wanted to make sure to mention on, uh, on track record is not only are you assessing their track record, but you're also assessing how their track record compares to their current strategy and the current deals that they're bringing you. So key number three is team. Who are the actual decision makers Ideally, and this is very common, you're gonna be wanting to talk to the principals. Like who, who are the people who actually give the final stamp of approval? And on that level, 
you're really wanting to talk and get an understanding of investment philosophy, you know, what are the value, how do you evaluate risk, how do you evaluate deals, what type of returns are you targeting, um, how, do you, how do you think about um, how long you hold properties, just really talking about philosophy in general. But then as you, as you meet with more and more of the team, you typically are going to have some folks who are leading the charge on the acquisitions. Uh, who are kind of boots on the ground, looking at properties, walking properties, ideally out there trying to find the greatest deals that they can. Then you have folks on the asset management and property management side, absolutely critical, essential to the underwriting process. So you can go out and buy a property and put all these projections together, but what is the opinion, what is the perspective of the people who are actually going to be taking over that asset and actually managing it. I think an important element to consider is, this is definitely something, a, a pretty clear distinction between groups is, is a group managing the properties themselves? Are they bringing in a third-party manager? If they are third-party management, if that is their structure, that's kind of a opens up a whole new set of layers to evaluate, in my opinion. Um, and so that's, that's a critical distinction. Are they self-managing? You know, if something is going wrong on the property, is there a finger being pointed to a third-party manager? Uh, or is it, hey, no, this is, this is our team. You know, it's on us. We will go out and fix it. And so that's, a, that's an important distinction when it comes to team. Number four is transparency. So transparency comes down to communication. It's some things to evaluate are what does the monthly or quarterly reporting look like? Is it just a you know really basic uh, couple reports that are spit out? You know, a couple financials. Is there a narrative? Are there phone calls? How accessible are the principals? How accessible are the people on the team? This is a common thing that you end up seeing is. It's, it's not uncommon that the most valuable person for an investor to connect with is not a principal on an item. There's, you wanna to talk to the director of asset management. You wanna to talk to someone in acquisitions. You wanna to talk to someone in accounting. And so how accessible is their team? How accessible is, are they in general? Another element on transparency is, I'll kind of like rattle through the things to be checking out. Um, do they have any sort of an online portal where you can log in and see things like uh, you know, data on your investment, P&Ls, um, ideally reporting on your return? Uh, there's a number of softwares out there that are available to sponsors, so that's something that um, usually if a group is of size, they'll have something like that. Um, so access to an online portal is one thing. Um, what is their process? of when investors have questions or issues, you know, who are they reaching out to? Is that something that's, you know, kind of an established process or is it hit or miss on who you reach out to and who you talk to? Um, and, and like the easiest way to evaluate a group uh, from the standpoint of transparency is just what is the information they're able to provide you on the front end as you're vetting them. When it comes to evaluating transparency, an important thing to think about is what data is available at my fingertips? How is the sponsor stewarding my investment and the asset that, that we're invested in? And there's an element of knowing what data is available at my fingertips if I so choose. So oftentimes, I mention this oftentimes, if an investment is going really well, there's gonna be less questions, but the important thing is, regardless of how it's going at any time, I'm traveling on a trip, I'm halfway around the world, uh, or I'm you know, really busy with family and friends or engagements, or I have time on my hands, regardless of what is going on in my life, what information is available at my fingertips to where when I wanna get a pulse on the latest what's going on, is it all available for me? So. One example is uh, a lot of groups will have, this is something that we've been rolling out, is a portal where someone can log into and 
they can see kind of the historical quarterly or monthly reports. They can, if there's, if there were any webinars or calls uh, regarding the the property, that those are on there. So kind of a it, ideal is to have kind of a one-stop shop where when I want to access informa- access information, I have a place I can go where I can where I can do that, where I can access it and get my my questions answered. We're now into vetting an investment, an individual property, an individual deal. And the first layer to of evaluation is the type. What what type of property is this? What type of deal is it? And it's a pretty basic layer, meaning it's pretty easy. It's a checkbox. It's an evaluation, but it speaks to something I would say a lot deeper and which is worth, you know, looking under the hood and evaluating and thinking about. So this is this is part evaluating the deal and it's part internal reflection kind of matching or uh, gauging what the investment is against your own investing principles, your own investing values, really your own degree of risk tolerance and really what you're looking for in investment. So the type of the deal, I'm just going to kind of meander through the different types and comment on them and some things to be cognizant of on these investment types. There's a lot of graphs and there's a lot of materials out there that paint a pretty picture of this. And some consider it a continuum where you go from the kind of lowest risk, most conservative investments along the spectrum. And there's debate on exactly which type of investments fall where. Um, all the way to kind of the, the highest risk, high, highest reward type of investments, the most aggressive. So you start at one end of the spectrum, which is considered kind of your core, core plus, which is in simplistic terms, it's your nice, new, brand new uh, type of product in a really, really good area that everyone would agree this thing isn't going anywhere. This is a great piece of property. It's in an ideal location. It's in a great sub-market. And, and it's a really beautiful product. It's a really beautiful investment. A lot of investors like to own that. Um, you know, you can, you know, there's a sense of pride of ownership that you have something that's really nice. Hence, because of all those reasons, the returns are just typically expected to be a lot lower on those types of investments. So as we as we're looking at these, as we're talking about type, there's this there's this evaluation to do on where is my comfort level and what are the types of deals that I'm targeting. Uh, additional types of deals, something that is a really common term that a lot of people talk about is value add, the value add strategy. That's something that where we've seen a a lot of our best deals are in this value add strategy. So I want to talk about value add because it falls into the type of deal very significantly. And it's something where it's it's worthwhile peeling it back a little bit and saying what exactly is value add? What are the different types of value add? What are the different degrees of value add? Because this is very commonly, I see a lot of offerings out there where they almost all say value add in some way, shape, or form. So there's a, there's an aspect where you we want to be able to evaluate what exactly do they mean by that and how significant is the value add and how much of a challenge is that value add going to be. It's another thing that goes back to key number two, which is which is track record and strategy. Is their value add strategy and what they're doing with that property, is that in line with past investments where they've had success doing something like that? So value add, I see it as a, again, kind of a a continuum where you have the the most aggressive type of value add all the way down to you have some pretty simple value adds. So one value add is management. You're, you're buying a property where the management is subpar for whatever reason. It might be a mom and pop operator, but for whatever reason, they are simply just making poor decisions at 
you know, one, two, three hundred dollars more than they're at, and they're just choosing not to. They've just been lazy, or they, for whatever reason, are just renting their their units too low. Um, there could be elements of of lack of professionalism, lack of marketing, anything to do in the management category is the easiest value add to fix. Because you simply go in, you put professional property management in place, you start making good decisions, you start running it uh, like a a well-oiled machine, and those results are the typically the quickest and the easiest to see is management change value add. So that's one category, and we love to see some of the some of the most exciting deals that that we find are ones where there's not a whole lot of problems at the property. We like the physical asset, we like you know everything about it, but we just feel like the the management there is pretty subpar. So that's one category. Another category that you have is, and this is kind of a a, a spectrum here, is physical rehab and reputation rehab. So if and, and those those are the ones that can take longer and kind of takes takes longer to see the ROI on those. But a, a critical distinction we'll talk about is the physical rehab. So what is what are the things that the that that uh, are planned to go in and fix? What is the expected ROI on fixing those items? A, kind of I'll use an extreme example where this would be a red flag to me. If someone says we're going in and we are uh, we are repainting the exterior, we're repaving the parking lot, we're not doing anything to the units, and we're going to bump the rents, you know, a, a, a huge amount. My first question would be, you know, you're not doing any to the anything to the bathrooms, anything to the kitchens, anything to the things that typically are going to drive your rental revenue up. Because ultimately, there's a first impression someone drives through. There's a first impression that they see on the property. But making improvements to the units is most often where you're going to see your biggest bump in rents. So trying to see what is the what are the physical renovations that they're doing and do those align with the, with the increase in rents that they're projecting. There should be kind of a common sense gut check element of, Okay, they're fixing or they're improving these things. I can, you know, I personally can see why that would drive the rent. I would pay more for a place if I was a customer. I would pay more for a place if those things were addressed. Now, the last area of value add is, and it's the hardest to overcome, and so this should be considered when evaluating an opportunity, is reputation and you could almost say area as being a part of you can't fix the area but if you if you're in a rough area that's that goes along with your reputation you can have a good reputation in the not in not so great area so i'm kind of combining those two but reputation is the biggest one to overcome where you have to change management you're nine times out of ten you're having to do some physical repairs plus you have to get the the reputation of the place in the community improved. And that can take a while, um, but those are kind of the three elements of value add. And it's important to be determining kind of where in that spectrum is the, is the business plan, how aggressive is the value add, and how logical, how logical is it that that value add is gonna be achieved. Kind of a final piece when it comes to value add is just the timeline that that the the sponsor is projecting to achieve the value add. It's great. We've gone in and we've boosted rents and we've made a bunch of changes in the first couple months even, and just you know had had this really incredible value add right out of the gates. We don't underwrite it that way, and it's a red flag to us if someone says, hey, we're going to accomplish all of this in the first six months. We typically have our value add schedule completing over three years, giving ourselves plenty of time to encounter uh, unforeseen issues and to be able to overcome those. Definitely a, the, in the most aggressive, on the most aggressive end of the spectrum when it comes to the type of investment that you're evaluating. Anything to do with 
new construction, with development, with a historic redevelopment, anything in that area is going to be uh, the most aggressive. It's typically going to be where there's no cash flow, there's no distributions for you know months or even years because, for example, a typical construction timeline is 18 months, something like that. So you might be buying the ground and then there might be a holding period and then you start construction. So, I mean, we've had, we've had uh, this deal that we, that we purchased 184 units. We're here in the heart of downtown Kansas City. I mean, we bought this building, held it for a couple of years. Then we did a historic redevelopment. I mean, this was four plus years before any sort of distributions were seen. And so that is an end of the spectrum where it's really important to evaluate is this type of investment something where I'm willing to wait this long of a period and I'm and there's there's a lot more risk in that because you have a lease up period there's a lot that has to go right and so when evaluating a, a sponsor who's doing a project in this category really what you want to see is having a comfort level of are they the right sponsor to do a project like this? Is, is this something that they've done in the past, that they, have, that they uh, have experience in, that they've seen success in? And when we, we've kind of, we've, we've done investments all along the spectrum, and our, our niche, our kind of, our, our very narrow business model that makes us unique is that we have we, we, all of our projects are just in Kansas City. Uh, we, everything that we've done is within a one hour radius of Kansas City outside of one deal that we just did, which is in Wichita, which is three hours away. And so our narrow focus is we, even though we've now gotten into development, it's that we see a lot of development sites all around Kansas City. And we've chosen a small select few where we've said, this is a no-brainer. We're getting a great deal on the land. We're getting a great deal on this opportunity. And even though if you were to go back five years at that time and say, well, we don't have experience developing, there is an element where it's like, yeah, but we have a lot of experience, probably as much or more than anyone else, when it comes to acquiring, multifam acquiring and managing multifamily in the greater Kansas City area. And so a lot of that was a lot of the emphasis for us getting into the development side was just our expert expertise in the industry in general. And we had a learning curve on the development side and on the construction side, but the our approach of how we purchased the deal was kind of a barrier, was a buffer uh, for us to be able to um, maybe make some mistakes and not do things perfectly on the development side, but to make up for that, that we just, at the end of the day, found a great deal. So when it comes to type, in summary, the simplistic way to look at type is this is a fairly basic analysis. I mean, the individual investment is going to fit into one of these buckets. And the important thing is that internal analysis of just what is the type of return that I'm targeting, what is the type of risk tolerance that I have, and even though you have deals that fit into a certain bucket, it's really important to kind of peel back and look at, a, look at a couple layers below when it comes to the type. So for example, with value add, I, I, would, almost, I would almost fit in the word business plan when it comes to type. That's, that's a, a really important qualifier is not only are we looking at the type, but it's the type plus the business plan. Okay, this is a this is a 30-year-old property. It's got, you know, some nominal repairs that need to be done to it. Uh, what is the, you know, okay, so that fits into a category, but just as important is what is the associated business plan for that type? And so that's just a, a really, really important distinction is is to to be evaluating the types of deals that are in your comfort zone and also how aggressive, that's an important thing, how aggressive is the business plan? And the, both of those just speak to risk tolerance and expected, re, and expected upside or expected return on the deal. The more aggressive 
the, the type of asset and the more aggressive the business plan, the more that has to be done to fix it, typically you're going to expect higher returns. And if you find an opportunity where it's an aggressive business plan, it's an aggressive type, but the sponsor has a lot of expertise solving those problems on the property, I think that's, a, that's an opportunity to, to really consider. The thesis and the narrative is all of the surface level. It's, it's everything you can get from an opportunity in the 30-second uh, you know, explanation of it, everything you can get on kind of the opening, the summary, if you were to watch a webinar, if someone was presenting on the opportunity. It's the high level, does this deal make sense? Because everything about how the deal was discovered, how the sponsor is a good fit to be buying this, managing it, the, the business plan on a, on a, and it's very much a gut level, a gut check kind of uh, analysis. But it's so important to separate it out and distinguish it because deals that don't make sense, when you just tell it to your neighbor or tell it to your friend or say it back to yourself, if something doesn't make sense, that's a really big red flag. This is common throughout investments in, in all categories of in the investing world is why a couple questions that should have a really good answer. Why, why are we getting a good deal? Just what about this opportunity? Why would that seller be selling at such a discount? If, if the story is the seller on this deal is a large corporation, they're flush with cash, they're doing great, they're not motivated, they marketed this thing and there was a call for offers and a bunch of people were bidding on it and, and we got the deal. I'd say, what? You know, that just doesn't add up. Like, you know, it sounds like they're getting top dollar for this deal. Now, if that same story was the case and I heard that and they said, but we have been looking at this opportunity for over three years and there's, it's a really complex deal and very few people understand the inner workings of it. Maybe it's a tax credit deal or it's a historic deal. And we actually know a bunch of information about the history of this property or its potential of where it can go that other people don't know. It's like, okay, now there's an element to that where I can see that would make sense that someone would be getting a good deal. So that's a, it's a, just a very critical layer is to assess, yeah, first of all is how, what's the story behind the seller? What's the story of, of how uh, you found out about the deal? What's the story of how it got negotiated? You know, how did you come to that final price? Uh, a lot of that is, is a really, really important layer. Uh, and then the same thing goes to the high level business plan. This goes back to, you know, uh, key number five, uh, which, you know, is, is the strategy is a really important, the business plan is a really important element of the deal. So the reason why I say thesis is you've got some sort of statement, you've got some sort of, uh, hey, we wanna buy this and it's a, it's a good deal. And the thesis is, you know, the, the defending of that claim. And, and the, the, the kind of important element that I would say when it comes to evaluating uh, key number six is, can someone answer the questions, the high level questions that I have, and can they sell me on the deal in, in a conversation? It's, it's, a narr it's the narrative element. Does the story all make sense? Does the business plan all make sense? Do, you know, why are we buying this? What are we gonna do with it? Where do we feel the value is gonna be? Does all of that make sense? And is all of that, uh, you know, something that passes passes the the gut check of this sounds like a situation where there's going to be a really great opportunity. Uh, we have, I would say, because we are so narrowly focused, specifically in Kansas City, that 
most of the deals that we're buying, there's kind of a long history to, you know, well, we've been looking at this deal for a number of years. We've known about it for a number of years. So-and-so, you know, sold it for this amount, you know, four years ago, and we're getting it at this, whatever it is. You know, that's something that, that is really important to us, and that's a reason why we've kept our focus so narrow. So one example is Oak Tree Square. We were, I was in my car or we were working late at the office and we got a phone call from a broker, I think it was, someone in the industry, and we knew it was a deal within, you know, five sentences. It was simply, what area is it in? What's the price per unit? Right then and there, we were actually working on a separate deal. And as soon as we got the phone call, it was drop what we're working on. This is a deal. Unequivocally, this is a deal. We had looked at, it's just an interesting story. It was probably five years prior, six years prior, something like that, or two properties side by side. And we had looked at the neighboring property and it was really, really, it was kind of like the ugly stepchild and this, you know, really much nicer property. They were side by side. And we had looked at the ugly stepchild property. We had really closely considered, it was really close on the numbers and it was something we had ended up passing on or we couldn't get the right pricing on it. But it was 25 a door. It was a good opportunity, good deal. And, you know, five, six years later, the much better version, uh, much more attractive property we were able to get at 21 a door. And so that that is a story. And and when it comes to the the kind of the backstory of that, this is a common thing that we see is a property is goes under contract multiple times. And for whatever reason people back out or people are unsure and the seller gets their patience gets worn thin. And this one was, I can't even remember the specific circumstance, but there was basically 45, 60 days at the most to close. It was a situation with the seller and they'd been under contract and it was like, this is a last minute thing. Someone needs to step in who knows the history of the deal, who has a comfort level to move really fast. We definitely were in that situation and so, you know, we went under contract almost immediately and it turned out to be a great deal. And so that's, that's an, just one example or one element where, where the, the story behind the deal, it's like you can, you can describe it in a couple minutes and it's like, it just makes sense. I, I, you know, the numbers make sense. Uh, that's, that's a narrative. That's something where um, you'd, be, you'd be really surprised if that doesn't turn out to be a great deal. So key number seven is terms. When it comes to terms, there's a lot of detail you can go into. But if you were to summarize it, if you were try to just look at it from kind of a high level, you're first evaluating, does everything about the details that you're digging into, does it match with everything you've been assessing about the deal, the property, and the sponsor? So does it kind of pass muster? Does do the numbers and does the underwriting match the the narrative and the thesis that's already been shared? Does it match the business plan that's already been shared? So that's one where that's kind of the check the box, you know, how accurate, how much does it does it line up? The second component is absolutely people are going to go right to what is my forecasted return? What is my projected return? And kind of the summary of that is just to separate out what is based on assumptions and what is based on what is in the sponsor's control. That's a really clear distinction. How much of the improvement or the how much of the return that I'm expecting to get comes from things that hey, if they just execute the business plan, that should happen. And how much comes from there's some speculation that something's going to happen in the marketplace. And the most 
kind of notable of that is if there's a, a forecasted sale or a forecasted refinance, you know, what are the terms that are forecasted? How aggressive or how conservatively are those forecasted? And just take those with a grain of salt on, on forecasts or speculations, uh, you know, not to put too much emphasis on those and to put a lot more emphasis on what is in the sponsor's control. And then the last piece when it comes to the terms is the, the structure, and this we can get into kind of the legal or the there's a lot of technical here, but is the structure of fees and uh, there's a preferred return and there's a post-pref split. Ultimately, at the end of the day, a really important analysis that, that I see a lot of people talking about is to work backwards from you start with the forecast of return and to work backwards into all of the details that, that create that return. So a great example is this. I do, first and foremost, do not start with fees at all. Um, there's a lot of folks who, who that's not the first place they're going to start is how are the fees structured. At the end of the day, there are absolutely groups who can have higher fees, but if they're great at what they do, even with higher fees, they can produce much greater returns for their investors. And so an important thing when it comes to fees, this is just keeping it high level, an important thing to assess is how aligned is the sponsor with the investors. This is, this is really absolutely a, a layer in and of itself is are the fees structured to hopefully just cover costs, just break even? Is the sponsor profiting? Are they building their own wealth based on fees or are they building their wealth because the business plan goes according to plan and it's actually a successful investment? The number one thing in my opinion to assess and there can be endless debates on which fees are most appropriate, which structures are most appropriate. But the thing to just keep returning back to is are we in alignment? To give a couple examples, you've got very common fees that you're going to see is you've oftentimes got some sort of an acquisition fee. You've oftentimes got a, unequivocally, you have a property management fee, whether the sponsor is managing or whether it's a third-party manager. That's just uh, a given that there's going to be a management fee. You might have some sort of refinance or disposition fee, but the, the question on every fee should be, how much is it? And just roughly speaking, how much of that is profit margin for you? For us, you look historically and our fees are, have always been designed to, for us to either break even or oftentimes many years, we lose a little bit of money when it comes to our fees. A great example on the acquisition fee is we have an acquisitions team and they are out all day long. It's their full-time job is to find deals. We charge an acquisition fee to simply cover their cost. And if you look back historically, I think probably 80, 90% of the years have lost money or broken even, you're right in that range on covering the cost of that team. So the benefit to us and, and something to look for is the benefit to the sponsor is are they making their money because they actually went out and found a really great deal? They actually managed it really well. They were hopefully, and the thing to look for is, are they in alignment with the investors? So fees, it's a great thing to dig into. Um, fees are a great thing to dig into and understand, but it's, you can get lost in the details and, and the important thing to assess is just the alignment with the investors and the sponsor. Another piece to think about on return is to keep going back to the, the sponsor's track record of where they forecast versus where they end up hitting. It's just such an important thing to, to not get caught up on, on a shiny, you know, best case scenario forecasted. There's a, a lot of folks that I talk to who are like, 
if I see a return that's too high, I don't even look at it because, you know, something's got to be off there. Um, if that's, that's, you know, a personal preference or that's something that I've heard a lot of people say. But the, the important thing to, to really assess, the most important thing to assess, in my opinion, when it comes to return is not only, you know, where is the forecasted return at, but asking the sponsor, you know, point blank, how likely do you think it is or what are the avenues where this return performs better than what you forecasted? And if you start to dig in and you start to realize this sounds like one of the most conservative scenarios that the sponsor thinks is going to occur, that really, you know, they don't see many scenarios where the property's gonna perform, you know, worse and where the deal's gonna be worse than what they projected, and they actually just see a lot of pathways to where it's gonna perform better. That is a much more critical analysis than the what is posted, what is the advertised return. Because, I mean, if you're comparing someone forecasts a 12% cash on cash and someone forecasts a 10%, but you dig into the history and the person forecasting 12% you know, continually misses their forecast. The person forecasting 10%, you know, almost like clockwork, is really crushing their forecast. It's like, you know, at first glance, you might really gravitate to that 12% return versus the 10% or 9% or 8%. Uh, but upon deeper you know, discovery and upon, you know, deeper analysis, you, you find out the likelihood of my return being, you know, uh, the greater between these two deals is actually with this, you know, more conservative projection and more conservative sponsor. So that is the seven keys to passive investing in multifamily real estate. And the first episode, the whole point, the whole purpose is just to get my take, kind of my explanation of the seven keys. But Really what I'm most excited about for the podcast and also the, the upcoming book is to get the perspective of successful passive investors in multifamily real estate. So our next episode, for example, is a gentleman who's uh, had multiple e-commerce exits and uh, has taken those funds and invested them into passively into multifamily real estate. We get to hear from from him and folks like him, successful invest investors. And so that's that's um, what I'm really most excited about about this podcast is the guests. Fine to hear from me. Um, you know, this is our, we are a sponsor and we have spent the last 15 years uh, investing in multifamily real estate, but I just can't say it enough that um, it's really the guests and the successful passive investors that I think folks are going to get the most value from.